with you here this evening, and I have a little different version of storytelling for you this week. This was actually something I had planned to do down the line for authors and poets whose works were in the public domain. But it just so happens that as I was looking for someone to do a story on, I found the autobiography for Helen Keller, which also happens to be in the public domain. So I thought instead of researching and writing my own story for her, I figured who better than to tell her own story than the woman herself in her own words. And so this is the first part of her autobiography, The Story of My Life, chapters 1 through 11. The book itself is actually divided into three parts, but I'm just going to be reading part one, which is her autobiography. And then I will be dividing that into two parts. So the second part is going to be released this Thursday, April 22nd, and that will be the remaining chapters in the book. So I hope you enjoy the autobiography of Helen Keller titled The Story of My Life. Enjoy. The Story of My Life by Helen Keller Part 1 The Story of My Life Chapter 1 It is with a kind of fear that I begin to write the history of my life. I have, as it were, a superstitious hesitation in lifting the veil that clings about my childhood like a golden mist. The task of writing an autobiography is a difficult one. When I try to classify my earliest impressions, I find that fact and fancy look alike across the years that link the past with the present. The woman paints the child's experiences in her own fantasy. A few impressions stand out vividly from the first years of my life, but the shadows of the prison house are on the rest. Besides, many of the joys and sorrows of childhood have lost their poignancy, and Many incidents of vital importance in my early education have been forgotten in the excitement of great discoveries. In order, therefore, not to be tedious, I shall try to present in a series of sketches only the episodes that seem to me to be the most interesting and important. I was born on June 27, 1880, in Tuscumbia, a little town of northern Alabama. The family on my father's side is descended from Caspar Keller, a native of Switzerland who settled in Maryland. One of my Swiss ancestors was the first teacher of the deaf in Zurich and wrote a book on the subject of their education, rather a singular coincidence. Though it is true that there is no king who has not had a slave among his ancestors and no slave who has not had a king among his. My grandfather, Caspar Keller's son, entered large tracts of land in Alabama and finally settled there. I have been told that once a year he went from Tuscumbia to Philadelphia on horseback to purchase supplies for the plantation, and my aunt has in her possession many of the letters to his family, which give charming and vivid accounts of these trips. My grandmother Keller was a daughter of one of Lafayette's aides, Alexander Moore, and the granddaughter of Alexander Spotswood, an early colonial governor of Virginia. She was also second cousin to Robert E. Lee. 
father, Arthur H. Keller, was a captain in the Confederate Army, and my mother, Kate Adams, was his second wife and many years younger. Her grandfather, Benjamin Adams, married Susanna E. Goodhue and lived in Newbury, Massachusetts for many years. Their son, Charles Adams, was born in Newburyport, Massachusetts, and moved to Helena, Arkansas. When the Civil War broke out, he fought on the side of the South and became a brigadier general. He married Lucy Helen Everett, who belonged to the same family of Everett's as Edward Everett and Dr. Edward Everett Hale. After the war was over, the family moved to Memphis, Tennessee. I lived up to the time of the illness that deprived me of my sight and hearing in a tiny house consisting of a large square room and a small one in which the servants slept. It is a custom in the South to build a small house near the homestead as an annex to be used on occasion. Such a house my father built after the Civil War, and when he married my mother, they went to live in it. It was completely covered with vines, climbing roses, and honeysuckles. From the garden, it looked like an arbor. The little porch was hidden from view by a screen of yellow roses and southern smilax. It was the favorite haunt of hummingbirds and bees. The Keller homestead where the family lived was a few steps from our little rose bower. It was called Ivy Green because the house and the surrounding trees and fences were covered with beautiful English ivy. Its old-fashioned garden was the paradise of my childhood. Even in the days before my teacher came, I used to feel along the square, stiff boxwood hedges and, guided by the sense of smell, would find the first violets and lilies. There, too, after a fit of temper, I went to find comfort and to hide my hot face in the cool leaves and grass. What joy it was to lose myself in that garden of flowers, to wander happily from spot to spot, until, coming suddenly upon a beautiful vine, I recognized it by its leaves and blossoms, and knew it was the vine which covered the tumble-down summer house at the farther end of the garden. Here also were trailing clematis, drooping jessamine, and some rare sweet flowers called butterfly lilies, because their fragile petals resemble butterflies' wings. But the roses, they were the loveliest of all. Never have I found in the greenhouses of the north such heart-satisfying roses as the climbing roses of my southern home. They used to hang in long festoons from our porch, filling the whole air with their fragrance, untainted by any earthy smell. And in the early morning, washed in the dew, they felt so soft, so pure. I could not help wondering if they did not resemble the asphodels of God's garden. The beginning of my life was simple and much like every other little life. I came, I saw, I conquered, as the first baby in the family always does. There was the usual amount of discussion as to a name for me. The first baby in the family was not to be lightly named. Everyone was emphatic about that. My father suggested the name of Mildred Campbell, an ancestor whom he highly esteemed, and he declined to take any further part in the discussion. My mother solved the problem by giving it as her wish that I should be called after her mother, whose maiden name was Helen Everett. 
But in the excitement of carrying me to church, my father lost the name on the way, very naturally, since it was one in which he had declined to have a part. When the minister asked him for it, he just remembered that it had been decided to call me after my grandmother, and he gave her name as Helen Adams. I am told that while I was still in long dresses, I showed many signs of an eager, self-asserting disposition. Everything that I saw other people do, I insisted upon imitating. At six months, I could pipe out, had ye? And one day, I attracted everyone's attention by saying, tea, 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 quite plainly. Even after my illness, I remembered one of the words I had learned in these early months. It was the word water, and I continued to make some sound for that word after all other speech was lost. I ceased making the sound wa-wa only when I learned to spell the word. They tell me I walked the day I was a year old. My mother had just taken me out of the bathtub and was holding me in her lap when I was suddenly attracted by the flickering shadows of leaves that danced in the sunlight on the smooth floor. I slipped from my mother's lap and almost ran towards them. The impulse gone, I fell down and cried for her to take me up in her arms. These happy days did not last long. One brief spring, musical with the song of robin and mockingbird, one summer, rich in fruit and roses, one autumn of gold and crimson sped by and left their gifts at the feet of an eager, delighted child. Then, in the dreary month of February, came the illness which closed my eyes and ears and plunged me into the unconsciousness of a newborn baby. They called it acute congestion of the stomach and brain. The doctor thought I could not live. Early one morning, however, the fever left me as suddenly and mysteriously as it had come. There was great rejoicing in the family that morning, but no one, not even the doctor, knew that I would never see or hear again. I fancy I still have confused recollections of that illness. I especially remember the tenderness with which my mother tried to soothe me in my wailing hours of fret and pain, and the agony and bewilderment with which I awoke after a tossing half-sleep and turned my eyes so dry and hot to the wall away from the once-loved light which came to me dim and yet more dim each day. But except for these fleeting memories, if indeed they be memories, it all seems very unreal, like a nightmare. Gradually I got used to the silence and darkness that surrounded me and forgot that it had ever been different until she came, my teacher, who was to set my spirit free. But during my first 19 months of my life, I had caught glimpses of broad green fields, a luminous sky, trees and flowers which the darkness that followed could not wholly blot out. If we have once seen, the day is ours, and what the day has shown. Chapter 2 I cannot recall what happened during the first months after my illness. I only know that I sat in my mother's lap or clung to her dress as she went about her household duties. My hands felt every object and observed every motion, and in this way I learned to know many things. Soon I felt the need of some communication with others and began to make crude signs. A shake of the head meant no, and a nod yes, a pull meant come, and a push go. 
Was it bread that I wanted? Then I would imitate the act of cutting the slices and buttering them. If I wanted my mother to make ice cream for dinner, I made the sign for working the freezer and shivered, indicating cold. My mother, moreover, succeeded in making me understand a good deal. I always knew when she wished me to bring her something, and I would run upstairs or anywhere else she indicated. Indeed, I owe to her loving wisdom all that was bright and good in my long night. I understand a good deal of what was going on about me. At five, I learned to fold and put away the clean clothes when they were brought in from the laundry, and I distinguished my own from the rest. I knew by the way my mother and aunt dressed when they were going out, and I invariably begged to go with them. I was always sent for when there was company, and when the guests took their leave, I waved my hand to them, I think with a vague remembrance of the meaning of the gesture. One day, some gentlemen called on my mother, and I felt the shutting of the front door and other sounds that indicated their arrival. On a sudden thought, I ran upstairs before anyone could stop me, put on my idea of a company dress. Standing before the mirror, as I had seen others do, I anointed mine head with oil and covered my face thickly with powder. Then I pinned a veil over my head so that it covered my face and fell in folds down to my shoulders, and tied an enormous bustle round my small waist so that it dangled behind, almost meeting the hem of my skirt. Thus attired, I went down to help entertain the company. I do not remember when I first realized that I was different from other people, but I knew it before my teacher came to me. I had noticed that my mother and my friends did not use signs as I did when they wanted anything done, but talked with their mouths. Sometimes I stood between two persons who were conversing and touched their lips. I could not understand, and I was vexed. I moved my lips and gesticulated frantically without result. This made me so angry at times that I kicked and screamed until I was exhausted. I think I knew when I was naughty, for I knew that it hurt Ella, my nurse, to kick her, and when my fit of temper was over, I had a feeling akin to regret. But I could not remember any instance which this feeling prevented me from repeating the naughtiness when I failed to get what I wanted. In those days, a little colored girl, Martha Washington, the child of our cook, and Belle, an old setter and great hunter in her day, were my constant companions. Martha Washington understood my signs, and I seldom had any difficulty in making her do just as I wished. It pleased me to domineer over her, and she generally submitted to my tyranny rather than risk a hand-to-hand -hand encounter. I was strong, active, indifferent to consequences. I knew my own mind well enough and always had my own way, even if I had to fight tooth and nail for it. We spent a great deal of time in the kitchen, kneading dough balls, helping make ice cream, grinding coffee, quarreling over the cake bowl, and feeding the hens and turkeys that swarmed about the kitchen steps. Many of them were so tame that they would eat from my hand and let me feel them. One big gobbler snatched a tomato from me one day and ran away with it. Inspired, perhaps, by Master Gobbler's success, we carried off to the woodpile a cake which the cook had just frosted and ate every bit of it. I was quite ill afterwards, and I wonder if retribution also overtook the turkey. 
The guinea fowl likes to hide her nest in out-of-the-way places, and it was one of my greatest delights to hunt for the eggs in the long grass. I could not tell Martha Washington when I wanted to go egg hunting, but I would double my hands and put them on the ground, which meant something round in the grass, and Martha always understood. When we were fortunate enough to find a nest, I never allowed her to carry the eggs home, making her understand by emphatic signs that she might fall and break them. The sheds where the corn was stored, the stable where the horses were kept, and the yard where the cows were milked morning and evening were unfailing sources of interest to Martha and me. The milkers would let me keep my hands on the cows while they milked, and I often got well switched by the cow for my curiosity. The making ready for Christmas was always a delight to me. Of course, I did not know what it was all about, but I enjoyed the pleasant odors that filled the house and the tidbits that were given to Martha Washington and me to keep us quiet. We were sadly in the way, but that did not interfere with our pleasure in the least. They allowed us to grind the spices, pick over the raisins, and lick the stirring spoons. I hung my stocking because the others did. I cannot remember, however, that the ceremony interested me specially, nor did my curiosity cause me to wake before daylight to look for my gifts. Martha Washington had as great a love of mischief as I. Two little children were seated on the veranda steps one hot July afternoon. One was black as ebony, with little bunches of fuzzy hair tied with shoestrings sticking out all overhead like corkscrews. The other was white with long golden curls. One child was six years old, the other two or three years older. The younger child was blind, that was I, and the other was Martha Washington. We were busy cutting out paper dolls, but we soon wearied of this amusement, and after cutting up our shoestrings and clipping all the leaves off the honeysuckle that were within reach, I turned my attention to Martha's corkscrews. She objected at first, but finally submitted. Thinking that turn and turn about is fair play, she seized the scissors and cut off one of my curls, and would have cut them all off but for my mother's timely interference. Belle, our dog, my other companion, was old and lazy and liked to sleep by the open fire rather than to romp with me. I tried hard to teach her my sign language, but she was dull and inattentive. She sometimes started and quivered with excitement. Then she became perfectly rigid, as dogs do when they point a bird. I did not know then why Belle acted in this way, but I knew she was not doing as I wished. This vexed me, and the lesson always ended in a one-sided boxing match. Belle would get up, stretch herself lazily, give one or two contemptuous sniffs, go to the opposite side of the hearth and lie down again, and I, weary and disappointed, went off in search of Martha. Many incidents of those early years are fixed in my memory, isolated but clear and distinct, making the sense of that silent, aimless, dayless life all the more intense. One day I happened to spill water on my apron, and I spread it out to dry before the fire, which was flickering on the sitting room hearth. The apron did not dry quickly enough to suit me, so I drew nearer and threw it right over the hot ashes. The fire leapt into life. The flames encircled me so that in a moment my clothes were blazing. 
I made a terrified noise that brought Vinny, my old nurse, to the rescue. Throwing a blanket over me, she almost suffocated me, but she put out the fire. Except for my hands and hair, I was not badly burned. About this time, I found out the use of a key. One morning, I locked my mother up in the pantry, where she was obliged to remain three hours, as the servants were in a detached part of the house. She kept pounding on the door while I sat outside on the porch steps and laughed with glee as I felt the jar of the pounding. This most naughty prank of mine convinced my parents that I must be taught as soon as possible. After my teacher, Miss Sullivan, came to me, I sought an early opportunity to lock her in her room. I went upstairs with something which my mother made me understand I was to give Miss Sullivan, but no sooner had I given it to her than I slammed the door to, locked it, and hid the key under the wardrobe in the hall. I could not be induced to tell where the key was. My father was obliged to get a ladder and take Miss Sullivan out through the window, much to my delight. Months after, I produced the key. When I was about five years old, we moved to the little vine-covered house to a large new one. The family consisted of my father and mother, two older half-brothers, and afterwards a little sister, Mildred. My earliest distinct recollection of my father is making my way through great drifts of newspapers to his side and finding him alone, holding a sheet of paper before his face. I was greatly puzzled to know what he was doing. I imitated this action, even wearing his spectacles thinking they might help solve the mystery, but I did not find out the secret for several years. Then I learned what those papers were, and that my father edited one of them. My father was most loving and indulgent, devoted to his home, seldom leaving us, except in the hunting season. He was a great hunter, I have been told, and a celebrated shot. Next to his family, he loved his dogs and gun. His hospitality was great, almost to a fault, and he seldom came home without bringing a guest. His special pride was the big garden where, it was said, he raised the finest watermelons and strawberries in the county, and to me he brought the first ripe grapes and the choicest berries. I remember his caressing touch as he led me from tree to tree, from vine to vine, and his eager delight in whatever pleased me. He was a famous storyteller. After I had acquired language, he used to spell clumsily into my hand his cleverest anecdotes, and nothing pleased him more than to have me repeat them at an opportune moment. I was in the north, enjoying the last beautiful days of the summer of 1896, when I heard the news of my father's death. He had had a short illness, there had been a brief time of acute suffering, and then all was over. This is my first great sorrow, my first personal experience with death. How shall I write of my mother? She is so near to me that it almost seems indelicate to speak of her. For a long time I regarded my little sister as an intruder. I knew that I had ceased to be my mother's only darling, and the thought filled me with jealousy. She sat in my mother's lap constantly, where I used to sit, and seemed to take up all of her care and time. One day something happened which seemed to me to be adding insult to injury. At that time I had a much petted, much abused doll, which I afterward named Nancy. 
She was, alas, the helpless victim of my outbursts of temper and of affection, so that she had become much the worse for wear. I had dolls which talked and cried and opened and shut their eyes, yet I never loved one of them as I loved poor Nancy. She had a cradle, and I often spent an hour or more rocking her. I guarded both doll and cradle with the most jealous care. But once I discovered my little sister sleeping peacefully in the cradle. At this presumption on the part of one to whom as yet no tie of love bound me, I grew angry. I rushed upon the cradle and overturned it, and the baby might have been killed had my mother not caught her as she fell. Thus, it is that when we walk in the valley of twofold solitude, we know little of the tender affections that grow out of endearing words and actions and companionship. But afterward, when I was restored to my human heritage, Mildred and I grew into each other's hearts, so that we were content to go hand in hand wherever Caprice led us. Although she could not understand my finger language, nor I her childish prattle. Chapter 3 Meanwhile, the desire to express myself grew. The few signs I used became less and less adequate, and my failures to make myself understood were invariably followed by outbursts of passion. I felt as if invisible hands were holding me, and I made frantic efforts to free myself. I struggled. Not that struggling helped matters, but the spirit of resistance was strong within me. I generally broke down in tears and physical exhaustion. If my mother happened to be near, I crept into her arms, too miserable even to remember the cause of the tempest. After a while, the need of some means of communication became so urgent that these outbursts occurred daily, sometimes hourly. My parents were deeply grieved and perplexed. We lived a long way from any school for the blind or the deaf and it seemed unlikely that anyone would come to such an out-of-the-way place as Discumbia to teach a child who was both deaf and blind. Indeed, my friends and relatives sometimes doubted whether I could be taught. My mother's only ray of hope came from Dickens' American Notes. She had read his account of Laura Bridgman and remembered vaguely that she was deaf and blind, yet had been educated. But she also remembered with a hopeless pang that Dr. Howe, who had discovered the way to teach the deaf and blind, had been dead for many years. His methods had probably died with him, and if they had not, how was a little girl in a far-off town in Alabama to receive the benefit of them? When I was about six years old, my father heard of an eminent oculist in Baltimore who had been successful in many cases that had seemed hopeless. My parents at once determined to take me to Baltimore to see if anything could be done for my eyes. The journey, which I remember well, was very pleasant. I made friends with many people on the train. One lady gave me a box of shells. My father made holes in these so that I could string them, and for a long time they kept me happy and contented. The conductor, too, was kind. Often, when he went his rounds, I clung to his coattails while he collected and punched the tickets. His punch, with which he let me play, was a delightful toy. Curled up in a corner of the seat, I amused myself for hours making funny little holes in bits of cardboard. My aunt made me a big doll out of towels, 
It was the most comical, shapeless thing, this improvised doll with no nose, mouth, ears, or eyes. Nothing that even the imagination of a child could convert into a face. Curiously enough, the absence of eyes struck me more than all the other defects put together. I pointed this out to everybody with provoking persistency, but no one seemed equal to the task of providing the doll with eyes. A bright idea, however, shot into my mind, and the problem was solved. I tumbled off the seat and searched under it until I found my aunt's cape, which was trimmed with large beads. I pulled two beads off and indicated to her that I wanted her to sew them on my doll. She raised my hand to her eyes in a questioning way, and I nodded energetically. The beads were sewed in the right place, and I could not contain myself for joy. But immediately, I lost all interest in the doll. During the whole trip, I did not have one fit of temper. There were so many things to keep my mind and fingers busy. When we arrived in Baltimore, Dr. Chisholm received us kindly. But he could do nothing. He said, however, that I could be educated and advised my father to consult Dr. Alexander Graham Bell of Washington, who would be able to give him information about schools and teachers of deaf or blind children. Acting on the doctor's advice, we went immediately to Washington to see Dr. Bell. My father, with a sad heart and many misgivings, I, wholly unconscious of his anguish, finding pleasure in the excitement of moving from place to place. Child as I was, I at once felt the tenderness and sympathy which endeared Dr. Bell to so many hearts, as his wonderful achievements enlist their admiration. He held me on his knee while I examined his watch, and he made it strike for me. He understood my signs, and I knew it and loved him at once but I did not dream that that interview would be the door through which I should pass from darkness into light, from isolation into friendship, companionship, knowledge, love. Dr. Bell advised my father to write to Mr. Anagnos, director of the Perkins Institution in Boston, the scene of Dr. Howe's great labors for the blind, and ask him if he had a teacher competent to begin my education. This my father did at once, and in a few weeks there came a kind letter from Mr. Agnagnos with the comforting assurance that a teacher had been found. This was in the summer of 1886, but Miss Sullivan did not arrive until the following March. Thus I came up out of Egypt and stood before Sinai, and a power divine touched my spirit and gave it sight, so that I beheld many wonders. And from the sacred mountain I heard a voice which said, Knowledge is love, and light, and vision. Chapter 4 The most important day I remember in all my life is the one on which my teacher, Anne Mansfield Sullivan, came to me. I am filled with wonder when I consider the immeasurable contrast between the two lives which it connects. It was the 3rd of March, 1887, three months before I was seven years old. On the afternoon of that eventful day, I stood on the porch, dumb, expectant. I guessed vaguely from my mother's signs and from the hurrying to and fro in the house that something unusual was about to happen. So I went to the door and waited on the steps. The afternoon sun penetrated the mass of honeysuckle that covered the porch and fell on my upturned face. 
My fingers lingered almost unconsciously on the familiar leaves and blossoms which had just come forth to greet the sweet southern spring. I did not know what the future held or of marvel or surprise for me. Anger and bitterness had preyed upon me continually for weeks, and a deep languor had succeeded this passionate struggle. Have you ever been at sea in a dense fog when it seemed as if a tangible white darkness shut you in, and the great ship, tense and anxious, groped her way towards the shore with plummet and sounding line, and you waited with beating heart for something to happen? I was like that ship before my education began, only I was without compass or sounding line, and had no way of knowing how near the harbor was. Light! Give me light! was the wordless cry of my soul, and the light of love shone on me in that very hour. I felt approaching footsteps. I stretched out my hand as I supposed to my mother. Someone took it, and I was caught up and held close in the arms of her, who had come to reveal all things to me, and, more than all things else, to love me. The morning after my teacher came, she led me into her room and gave me a doll. The little blind children at the Perkins Institution had sent it, and Laura Bridgman had dressed it. But I did not know this until afterwards. When I had played with it a little while, Miss Sullivan slowly spelled into my hand the word doll. I was at once interested in this finger play and tried to imitate it. When I finally succeeded in making the letters correctly, I was flushed with childish pleasure and pride. Running downstairs to my mother, I held up my hand and made the letters for doll. I did not know that I was spelling a word or even that words existed. I was simply making my fingers go in monkey-like imitation. In the days that followed, I learned to spell in this uncomprehending way a great many words, among them pin, hat, cup, and a few verbs like sit, stand, and walk. But my teacher had been with me several weeks before I understood that everything has a name. One day, while I was playing with my new doll, Miss Sullivan put my big rag doll into my lap also, spelled D-O-L-L, -L, and tried to make me understand that doll applied to both. Earlier in the day, we had a tussle over the words mug and water. Miss Sullivan had tried to impress it upon me that mug is mug and that water is water, but I persisted in confounding the two. In despair, she had dropped the subject for the time, only to renew it at the first opportunity. I became impatient at her repeated attempts and, seizing the new doll, I dashed it upon the floor. I was keenly delighted when I felt the fragments of the broken doll at my feet. Neither sorrow nor regret followed my passionate outburst. I had not loved the doll. In the still dark world in which I lived, there was no strong sentiment or tenderness. I felt my teacher sweep the fragments to one side of the hearth, and I had a sense of satisfaction that the cause of my discomfort was removed. She brought me my hat, and I knew I was going out into the warm sunshine. This thought, if a wordless sensation may be called a thought, made me hop and skip with pleasure. We walked down the path through the well house, attracted by the fragrance of the honeysuckle with which it was covered. Someone was drawing water, and my teacher placed my hand under the spout. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, she spelled into the other the word 
water, first slowly, then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness as of something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought, and somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that water meant the wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, set it free. There are barriers still, it is true, but barriers that could in time be swept away. I left the well house eager to learn. Everything had a name, and each name gave birth to a new thought. As we returned to the house, every object which I touched seemed to quiver with life. That was because I saw everything with the strange new sight that had come to me. On entering the door, I remembered the doll I had broken. I felt my way to the hearth and picked up the pieces. I tried vainly to put them together. Then my eyes filled with tears, for I realized what I had done, and for the first time I felt repentance and sorrow. I learned a great many new words that day. I do not remember what they all were, but I do know that mother, father, sister, teacher were among them. Words that were to make the world blossom for me, like Aaron's rod with flowers. It would have been difficult to find a happier child than I was as I lay in my crib at the close of that eventful day and lived over the joys it had brought me, and for the first time, longed for a new day to come. Chapter 5 I recall many incidents of the summer of 1887 that follow my soul's sudden awakening. I did nothing but explore with my hands and learn the name of every object that I touched. And the more I handled things and learned their names and uses, the more joyous and confident grew my sense of kinship with the rest of the world. When the time of daisies and buttercups came, Miss Sullivan took me by the hand across the fields where men were preparing the earth for the seed to the banks of the Tennessee River, and there, sitting on the warm grass, I had my first lessons in the beneficence of nature. I learned how the sun and the rain make to grow out of the ground every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, how birds build their nests and live and thrive from land to land, how the squirrel, the deer, the lion, and every other creature finds food and shelter. As my knowledge of things grew, I felt more and more the delight of the world I was in. Long before I learned to do a sum in arithmetic or describe the shape of the earth, Miss Sullivan had taught me to find beauty in the fragrant woods, and every blade of grass, and in the curves and dimples of my baby sister's hand. She linked my earliest thoughts with nature and made me feel that birds and flowers and I were happy peers. But about this time, I had an experience which taught me that nature is not always kind. One day, my teacher and I were returning from a long ramble. The morning had been fine, but it was growing warm and sultry when at last we turned our faces homeward. Two or three times we stopped to rest under a tree by the wayside. Our last halt was under a wild cherry tree a short distance from the house. 
The shade was grateful, and the tree was so easy to climb that with my teacher's assistance, I was able to scramble to a seat in the branches. It was so cool up in the tree that Miss Sullivan proposed that we have our luncheon there. I promised to keep still while she went to the house to fetch it. Suddenly, a change passed over the tree. All the sun's warmth left the air. I knew the sky was black because all the heat, which meant light to me, had died out of the atmosphere. A strange odor came up from the earth. I knew it. It was the odor that always preceded a thunderstorm, and a nameless fear clutched at my heart. I felt absolutely alone, cut off from my friends and the firm earth. The immense, the unknown, unfolded me. I remained still and expectant. A chilling terror crept over me. I longed for my teacher's return, but above all things I wanted to get down from that tree. There was a moment of sinister silence, then a multitudinous stirring of the leaves. A shiver ran through the tree, and the tree sent forth a blast that would have knocked me off had I not clung to the branches with might and main. The tree swayed and strained. The small twigs snapped and fell about me in showers. A wild impulse to jump seized me, but terror held me fast. I crouched down in the fork of the tree. The branches lashed about me. I felt the intermediate jarring that came now and then, as if something heavy had fallen and the shock had traveled up till it reached the limb I sat on. It worked my suspense up to the highest point, and just as I was thinking the tree and I should fall together, my teacher seized my hand and helped me down. I clung to her, trembling with joy as he filled the earth under my feet once more. I had learned a new lesson. That nature wages open war against her children, and under softest touch hides treacherous claws. After this experience, it was a long time before I climbed another tree. The mere thought filled me with terror. It was a sweet allurement of the mimosa tree in full bloom that finally overcame my fears. One beautiful spring morning when I was alone in the summer house reading, I became aware of a wonderful subtle fragrance in the air. I started up and instinctively stretched out my hands. It seemed as if the spirit of spring had passed through the summer house. What is it? I asked, and the next minute I recognized the odor of the mimosa blossoms. I felt my way to the end of the garden, knowing that the mimosa tree was near the fence, at the turn of the path. Yes, there it was, all quivering in the warm sunshine, its blossom-laden branches almost touching the long grass. Was there ever anything so exquisitely beautiful in the world before? Its delicate blossoms shrank from the slightest earthly touch. It seemed as if a tree of paradise had been transplanted to earth. I made my way through a shower of petals to the great trunk, and for one minute stood irresolute. Then, putting my foot in the broad space between the forked branches, I pulled myself up into the tree. I had some difficulty in holding on, for the branches were very large and the bark hurt my hands. But I had a delicious sense that I was doing something unusual and wonderful, so I kept on climbing higher and higher until I reached a little seat which somebody had built there so long ago that it had grown part of the tree itself. I sat there for a long, long time, feeling like a fairy on a rosy cloud. After that, I spent many happy hours in my tree of paradise, thinking fair thoughts and dreaming bright dreams.
Chapter 6 I had now the key to all language, and I was eager to learn to use it. Children who hear acquire language without any particular effort. The words that fall from others' lips they catch on the wing, as it were, delightedly, while the little deaf child must trap them by a slow and often painful process. But whatever the process, the result is wonderful. Gradually, from naming an object, we advance step by step until we have traversed the vast distance between our first stammered syllable and the sweep of thought in a line of Shakespeare. At first, when my teacher told me about a new thing, I asked very few questions. My ideas were vague and my vocabulary was inadequate. But as my knowledge of things grew, and I learned more and more words, my field of inquiry broadened and I would return again and again to the same subject, eager for further information. Sometimes a new word revived an image that some earlier experience had engraved on my brain. I remember the morning that I first asked the meaning of the word love. This was before I knew many words. I had found a few early violets in the garden and brought them to my teacher. She tried to kiss me, but at that time I did not like to have anyone kiss me except my mother. Miss Sullivan put her arm gently around me and spelled into my hand, I love Helen. What is love? I asked. She drew me closer to her and said, It is here, pointing to my heart, whose beats I was conscious of for the first time. Her words puzzled me very much because I did not then understand anything unless I could touch it. I smelt the violets in her hand and asked, half in words, half in signs, a question which meant, is love the sweetness of flowers? No, said my teacher. Again, I thought, the warm sun was shining on us. Is this not love? I asked, pointing in the direction from which the heat came. Is this not love? It seemed to me that there could be nothing more beautiful than the sun, whose warmth makes all things grow. But Miss Sullivan shook her head, and I was greatly puzzled and disappointed. I thought it strange that my teacher could not show me love. A day or two afterwards, I was stringing beads of different sizes in symmetrical groups. Two large beads, three small ones, and so on. I had made many mistakes and Miss Sullivan had pointed them out again and again with gentle patience. Finally, I noticed a very obvious error in the sequence, and for an instant I concentrated my attention on the lesson and tried to think how I should have arranged the beads. Miss Sullivan touched my forehead and spelled with decided emphasis, think. In a flash, I knew that the word was the name of the process that was going on in my head. This was my first conscious perception of an abstract idea. For a long time, I was still. I was not thinking of the beads in my lap, but trying to find a meaning for love in the light of this new idea. The sun had been under a cloud all day, and there had been brief showers, but suddenly the sun broke forth in all of its southern splendor. Again, I asked my teacher, is this not love? Love is something like the clouds that were in the sky before the sun came out, she replied. Then, in simpler words than these, which at that time I could not have understood, she explained, You cannot touch the clouds, you know, but you feel the rain, 
and you know how glad the flowers and the thirsty earth are to have it after a hot day. You cannot touch love either, but you feel the sweetness that it pours into everything. Without love, you would not be happy or want to play. The beautiful truth burst upon my mind. I felt that there were invisible lines stretched between my spirit and the spirit of others. From the beginning of my education, Miss Sullivan made it a practice to speak to me as she would speak to any hearing child. The only difference was that she spelled the sentences into my hand instead of speaking them. If I did not know the words and idioms necessary to express my thoughts, she supplied them, even suggested conversation when I was unable to keep up my end of the dialogue. This process was continued for several years, for the deaf child does not learn in a month, or even in two or three years, the numberless idioms and expressions used in the simplest daily intercourse. The little hearing child learns these from constant repetition and imitation. The conversation he hears in his home stimulates his mind and suggests topics and calls forth the spontaneous expression of it. This natural exchange of ideas is denied to the deaf child. My teacher, realizing this, determined to supply the kinds of stimulus I lacked. This she did by repeating to me as far as possible, verbatim, what she heard, and by showing me how I could take part in the conversation. But it was a long time before I ventured to take the initiative, and still longer before I could find something appropriate to say at the right time. The deaf and the blind find it very difficult to acquire the amenities of conversation. How much more this difficulty must be augmented in the case of those who are both deaf and blind. They cannot distinguish the tone of the voice or, without assistance, go up and down the gamut of tones that give significance to words. Nor can they watch the expression of the speaker's face, and a look is often the very soul of what one says. Chapter 7 the next important step in my education was learning to read. As soon as I could spell a few words, my teacher gave me slips of cardboard on which were printed words and raised letters. I quickly learned that each printed word stood for an object, an act, or a quality. I had a frame in which I could arrange the words in little sentences, but before I ever put sentences in the frame, I used to make them in objects. I found slips of paper which represented, for example, doll, is, on, bed, and placed each name on its object. Then I put my doll on the bed with the words is, on, bed, arranged beside the doll, thus making a sentence of the words, and at the same time carrying out the idea of the sentence with the things themselves. One day, Miss Sullivan tells me I pinned the word girl on my pinafore and stood in the wardrobe. On the shelf, I arranged the words is, in, wardrobe. Nothing delighted me so much as this game. My teacher and I played it for hours at a time. Often everything in the room was arranged in object sentences. From the printed slip, it was but a step to the printed book. I took my reader for beginners and hunted for the words that I knew. When I found them, my joy was like that of a game of hide-and-seek. Thus, I began to read. Of the time when I began to read connected stories, I shall speak later. For a long time, I had no regular lessons. 
Even when I studied most earnestly, it seemed more like play than work. Everything Miss Sullivan taught me she illustrated by a beautiful story or a poem. Whenever anything delighted or interested me, she talked it over with me just as if she were a little girl herself. What many children think of with dread as a painful plodding through grammar, hard sums, and harder definitions is today one of my most precious memories. I cannot explain the peculiar sympathy Miss Sullivan had with my pleasures and desires. Perhaps it was the result of long association with the blind. Added to this, she had a wonderful faculty for description. She went quickly over uninteresting details and never nagged me with questions to see if I remembered the day before yesterday's lesson. She introduced dry technicalities of science little by little, making every subject so real that I could not help remembering what she said. We read and studied out of doors, preferring the sunlit woods to the house. All of my early lessons have in them the breath of the woods, the fine resinous odor of pine needles, blended with the perfume of wild grapes. Seated in the gracious shade of a wild tulip tree, I learned to think that everything has a lesson and a suggestion. The loveliness of things taught me all their use. Indeed, everything that could hum or buzz or sing or bloom had a part in my education. Noisy-throated frogs, katydids and crickets held in my hand until, forgetting their embarrassment, they trilled their reedy note, little downy chickens and wildflowers, the dogwood blossoms, meadow violets, and budding fruit trees. I felt the bursting cotton bowls and fingered their soft fiber and fuzzy seeds. I felt the low soughing of the wind through the corn stalks and silky rustling of the long leaves and the indignant snort of my pony as we caught him in the pasture and put the bit in his mouth. Ah, me. Oh, well, I remember the spicy, clovery smell of his breath. Sometimes I rose at dawn and stole into the garden while the heavy dew lay on the grass and flowers. Few know what joy it is to feel the roses pressing softly into the hand, or the beautiful motion of the lilies as they sway in the morning breeze. Sometimes I caught an insect in the flower I was plucking, and I felt the faint noise of a pair of wings rubbed together in a sudden terror as the little creature became aware of a pressure from without. Their favorite haunt of mine was the orchard, where the fruit ripened early in July. The large, downy peaches would reach themselves into my hand, and as the joyous breezes flew about the trees, the apples tumbled at my feet. Oh, the delight in which I gathered up the fruit in my pinafore, pressed my face against the smooth cheeks of the apples still warm from the sun, and skipped back to our house. Our favorite walk was to Keller's Landing, an old tumble-down lumber wharf on the Tennessee River, used during the Civil War to land soldiers. There we spent many happy hours and played at learning geography. I built dams of pebbles, made islands and lakes, and dug riverbeds all for fun, and never dreamed that I was learning a lesson. I listened with increasing wonder to Miss Sullivan's descriptions of the great round world with its burning mountains, buried cities, moving rivers of ice, and many other things as strange. She made raised maps in clay so that I could feel the mountain ridges and valleys and follow with my fingers the devious courses of rivers. I liked this too, but the division of the earth into zones and poles confused and teased my mind. 
The illustrative strings and the orange stick representing the poles seem so real that even to this day the mere mention of temperate zones suggests a series of twine circles. And I believe that if anyone should set about it, he could convince me that white bears actually climb the North Pole. Arithmetic seems to have been the only study that I did not like. From the first, I was not interested in the science of numbers. Miss Sullivan tried to teach me to count by stringing beads in groups, and by arranging kindergarten straws I learned to add and subtract. I never had patience to arrange more than five or six groups at a time. When I had accomplished this, my conscience was at rest for the day, and I went out quickly to find my playmates. In the same leisurely manner, I studied zoology and botany. Once a gentleman, whose name I've forgotten, sent me a collection of fossils, tiny mollusk shells beautifully marked, and bits of sandstone with the print of bird's claws, and a lovely fern and bas relief. These were the keys which unlocked the treasures of the antediluvian world for me. With trembling fingers, I listened to Miss Sullivan's descriptions of the terrible beast with uncouth, unpronounceable names, which once went trampling through the primeval forests, tearing down the branches of gigantic trees for food, and died in the dismal swamps of an unknown age. For a long time, these strange creatures haunted my dreams, and this gloomy period formed a somber background to the joyous now filled with sunshine and roses and echoing with the gentle beat of my pony's hoof. Another time a beautiful show was given to me, and with a child's surprise and delight, I learned how a tiny mollusk had built a lustrous coil for his dwelling place, and how on still nights when there is no breeze stirring the waves, the nautilus sails on the blue waters of the Indian Ocean in his ship of pearl. After I had learned a great many interesting things about the life and habits of the children of the sea, how in the midst of dashing waves the little polyps build the beautiful coral isles of the Pacific, and the foraminivera have made the chalk hills of many a land, my teacher read me the chamber nautilus and showed me that the shell-building process of the mollusks is symbolical of the development of the mind. Just as the wonder-working mantle of the Nautilus changes the material it absorbs from the water and makes it a part of itself, so the bits of knowledge one gathers undergoes a similar change and becomes pearls of thought. Again, it was the growth of a plant that we furnished the text for our lesson. We bought a lily and set it in a sunny window. Very soon, the green pointed buds showed signs of opening. The slender, finger-like leaves on the outside opened reluctant, I thought, to reveal the loveliness they hid. Once having made a start, however, the opening process went on rapidly, but in order and systematically. There was always one bud larger and more beautiful than the rest, which pushed her outer covering back with more pomp, as if the beauty in soft, silky robes knew that she was the Lily Queen by right divine while her more timid sisters doffed their green hoods shyly, until the whole plant was one nodding bough of loveliness and fragrance. Once there were eleven tadpoles in a glass globe set in a window full of plants. I remember the eagerness with which I made discoveries about them. It was great fun to plunge my hand into the bowl and feel the tadpoles frisk about, and to let them slip and slide between my fingers. One day, a more ambitious fellow leaped beyond the edge of the bowl and fell on the floor, where I found him, to all appearance, more dead than alive. 
The only sign of life was a slight wriggling of his tail. But no sooner had he returned to his element than he darted back to the bottom, swimming around and around in joyous activity. He had made his leap, he had seen the great world, and was content to stay in his pretty glass house under the big fuchsia tree until he attained the dignity of froghood. Then he went to live in the leafy pool at the edge of the garden, where he made the summer nights musical with his quaint love song. Thus I learned from life itself. At the beginning I was only a little mass of possibilities. It was my teacher who unfolded and developed them. When she came, everything about me breathed of love and joy and was full of meaning. She has never since let pass an opportunity to point out the beauty that is in everything, nor has she ceased trying in thought and action and example to make my life sweet and useful. It was my teacher's genius, her quick sympathy, her loving tact, which made the first years of my education so beautiful. It was because she seized the right moment to impart knowledge that made it so pleasant and acceptable to me. She realized that the child's mind is like a shallow brook which ripples and dances merrily over the stony course of its education and reflects here a flower, there a bush, yonder a fleecy cloud. And she attempted to guide my mind on its way, knowing that, like a brook, it should be fed by mountain streams and hidden springs until it broadened out into a deep river capable of reflecting in its placid surface billowy hills, the luminous shadows of trees and the blue heavens, as well as the sweet face of a little flower. Any teacher can take a child to the classroom, but not every teacher can make him learn. He will not work joyously unless he feels that liberty is his, whether he is busy or at rest. He must feel the flush of victory and the heart sinking of disappointment before he takes with the will the tasks distasteful to him and resolves to dance his way bravely through a dull routine of textbooks. My teacher is so near to me that I scarcely think of myself apart from her. How much of my delight in all beautiful things is inane and how much is due to her influence, I can never tell. I feel that her being is inseparable from my own and that the footsteps of my life are in hers. All the best of me belongs to her. There is not a talent or an inspiration or a joy in me that has not been awakened by her loving touch. Chapter 8 The first Christmas after Miss Sullivan came to Tuscumbia was a great event. Everyone in the family prepared surprises for me, but what pleased me most, Miss Sullivan and I prepared surprises for everybody else. The mystery that surrounded the gifts was my greatest delight and amusement. My friends did all they could to excite my curiosity by hints and half-spelled sentences which they pretended to break off in the nick of time. Miss Sullivan and I kept up a game of guessing which taught me more about the use of language than any set lesson could have done. Every evening, seated around a glowing wood fire, we played our guessing game, which grew more and more exciting as Christmas approached. On Christmas Eve, the Tuscumbia school children had their tree, to which they invited me. In the center of the schoolroom stood a beautiful tree ablaze and shimmering in the soft light, its branches loaded with strange, wonderful fruit. It was a moment of supreme happiness. I danced and capered round the tree in ecstasy. When I learned that there was a gift for each child, I was delighted, and the kind people who had prepared the tree permitted me to hand the presents to the children.
In the pleasure of doing this, I did not stop to look at my own gifts, but when I was ready for them, my impatience for the real Christmas to begin almost got beyond control. I knew the gifts I already had were not those of which friends had thrown out such tantalizing hints, and my teacher said the presents I was to have would be even nicer than these. I was persuaded, however, to content myself with a gift from the tree and leave the others until morning. That night, after I had hung my stocking, I lay awake for a long time, pretending to be asleep and keeping alert to see what Santa Claus would do when he came. At last I fell asleep with a new doll and a white bear in my arms. Next morning it was I who waked the whole family with my first Merry Christmas. I found surprises not only in the stocking, but on the table, on all the chairs, at the door, on the very windowsill. Indeed, I could hardly walk without stumbling upon a bit of Christmas wrapped up in tissue paper. But when my teacher presented me with a canary, my cup of happiness overflowed. Little Tim was so tame that he would hop onto my finger and eat candied cherries out of my hand. Miss Sullivan taught me to take all the care of my new pet. Every morning after breakfast, I prepared his bath, made his cage clean and sweet, filled his cups with fresh seed and water from the well house, and hung a spray of chickweed in his swing. One morning I left the cage on the window seat while I went to fetch water for his bath. When I returned, I felt a big cat brush past me as I opened the door. At first, I did not realize what had happened, but when I put my hand in the cage and Tim's pretty wings did not meet my touch or his small pointed claws take hold of my finger, I knew that I should never see my little sweet singer again. Chapter 9 the next important event in my life was my visit to Boston in May 1888. As if it were yesterday, I remember the preparations, the departure with my teacher and my mother, the journey, and finally the arrival in Boston. How different this journey was from the one I had made to Baltimore two years before. I was no longer a restless, excitable little creature requiring the attention of everybody on the train to keep me amused. I sat quietly beside Miss Sullivan, taking in with eager interest all that she told me about what she saw at the car window. On the seat opposite me sat my big rag doll Nancy in a new gingham dress and a beruffled sunbonnet, looking at me out of two bead eyes. Sometimes, when I was not absorbed in Miss Sullivan's descriptions, I remembered Nancy's existence and took her up in my arms but I generally calmed my conscience by making myself believe that she was asleep. As I shall not have occasion to refer to Nancy again, I wish to tell here a sad experience she had soon after our arrival in Boston. She was covered with dirt, the remains of mud pies I had compelled her to eat, although she had never shown any special liking for them. The laundress at the Perkins Institution secretly carried her off to give her a bath, and this was too much for poor Nancy. When I next saw her, she was a formless heap of cotton, which I should not have recognized at all except for the two beaded eyes which looked out at me reproachfully. When the train at last pulled into the station at Boston, it was as if a beautiful fairy tale had come true. The once upon a time was now. The faraway country was here. 
We had scarcely arrived at the Perkins Institution for the Blind when I began to make friends with the little blind children. It delighted me inexpressibly to find that they knew the manual alphabet. What joy to talk with other children in my own language. Until then, I had been like a foreigner speaking through an interpreter. In the school where Laura Bridgman was taught, I was in my own country. It took me some time to appreciate the fact that my new friends were blind. I could not see, but it did not seem possible that all the eager, loving children who gathered around me and joined heartily in my frolics were also blind. I remember the surprise and the pain I felt as I noticed that they placed their hands over mine when I talked to them and that they read books with their fingers. Although I had been told this before, and although I understood my own deprivations, yet I had thought vaguely that since they could hear, they must have a sort of second sight, and I was not prepared to find one child and another and yet another deprived of the same precious gift. But they were so happy and contented that I lost all sense of pain in the pleasure of their companionship. One day spent with the blind children made me feel thoroughly at home in my new environment, and I looked eagerly from one pleasant experience to another as the days flew swiftly by. I could not quite convince myself that there was much world left, for I regarded Boston as the beginning and the end of creation. While we were in Boston, we visited Bunker Hill, and there I had my first lesson in history. The story of the brave men who had fought on the spot where we stood excited me greatly. I climbed the monument, counting the steps, and wondering as I went higher, and yet higher, if the soldiers had climbed this great stairway and shot at the enemy on the ground below. The next day we went to Plymouth by water. This was my first trip on the ocean, and my first voyage in a steamboat. How full of life and motion it was. But the rumble of the machinery made me think it was thundering, and I began to cry, because I feared if it had rained, we should not be able to have our picnic outdoors. I was more interested, I think, in the great rock on which the pilgrims landed than anything else in Plymouth. I could touch it, and perhaps that made the coming of the pilgrims and their toils and great deeds seem more real to me. I have often held in my hand a little model of the Plymouth Rock which a kind gentleman gave me at Pilgrim Hall, and I have fingered its curves, the split in the center, and the embossed figures 1620 and turned over in my mind all that I knew about the wonderful story of the pilgrims. How my childish imagination glowed with the splendor of their enterprise. I idealized them as the bravest and most generous men that ever sought a home in a strange land. I thought they desired the freedom of their fellow man as well as their own. I was keenly surprised and disappointed years later to learn of their acts of persecution that make us tingle with shame even while we glory in the courage and energy that gave us our country beautiful. Among the many friends I made in Boston were Mr. William Endicott and his daughter. Their kindness to me was the seed from which many pleasant memories have since grown. One day we visited their beautiful home at Beverly Farms. I remember with delight how I went through their rose garden, how their dogs, Big Leo and little curly-haired Fritz with long ears, came to meet me and how Nimrod, the swiftest of the horses, poked his nose into my hands for a pat and a lump of sugar. I also remembered the beach, where the first time I played in the sand. It was hard, smooth sand, very different from the loose, sharp sand mingled with kelp and shells at Brewster. Mr. Endicott told me about the great ships that came sailing by from Boston, bound for Europe. 
I saw him many times after that, and he was always a good friend to me. Indeed, I was thinking of him when I called Boston the city of kind hearts. Chapter 10 Just before the Perkins Institution closed for the summer, it was arranged that my teacher and I should spend our vacation at Brewster on Cape Cod with our dear friend Mrs. Hopkins. I was delighted, for my mind was full of the prospective joys and of the wonderful stories I had heard about the sea. My most vivid recollection of that summer is the ocean. I had always lived far inland and had never had so much of a whiff of salt air. But I had read in a big book called Our World, a description of the ocean which filled me with wonder and an intense longing to touch the mighty sea and feel it roar. So my little heart leapt high with eager excitement when I knew that my wish was at last to be realized. No sooner had I been helped into my bathing suit than I sprang out into the warm sand and without thought of fear plunged into the cool water. I felt the great billows rock and sink. The buoyant motion of the water filled me with an exquisite quivering joy. Suddenly, my ecstasy gave place to terror, for my foot struck against a rock, and the next instant there was a rush of water over my head. I thrust out my hands to grasp some support. I clutched at the water and at the seaweed which the waves tossed in my face. But all my frantic efforts were in vain. The waves seemed to be playing a game with me and tossed me from one to another in their wild frolic. It was fearful. The good, firm earth had slipped from my feet and everything seemed shut out from this strange, all-enveloping element, life, air, warmth, and love. At last, however, the sea, as if weary of its new toy, threw me back onto the shore, and in another instant I was clasped in my teacher's arms. Oh, the comfort of the long, tender embrace. As soon as I had recovered from my panic sufficiently to say anything, I demanded, who put salt in the water? After I recovered from my first experience in the water, I thought it great fun to sit on a big rock in my bathing suit and feel wave after wave dash against the rock, sending up a shower of spray, which quite covered me. I felt the pebbles rattling as the waves threw their ponderous weight against the shore. The whole beach seemed wrecked by their terrific onset, and the air throbbed with their pulsations. The breakers would swoop back to gather themselves for a mightier leap, and I clung to the rock, tense, fascinated, as I felt the dash and roar of the rushing sea. I could never stay long enough on the shore. The tang of the untainted, fresh and free sea air was like a cool, quieting thought, and the shells and pebbles and the seaweed with tiny living creatures attached to it never lost their fascination for me. One day, Miss Sullivan attracted my attention to a strange object which she had captured basking in the shallow water. It was a great horseshoe crab, the first one I had ever seen. I felt of him and thought it very strange that he should carry his house on his back. It suddenly occurred to me that he might make a delightful pet, so I seized him by the tail with both hands and carried him home. This feat pleased me highly, as his body was very heavy and it took all my strength to drag him half a mile. I would not leave Miss Sullivan in peace until she had put the crab in a trough near the well where I was confident he would be secure. But the next morning I went to the trough and lo, he had disappeared. Nobody knew where he had gone or how he had escaped. My disappointment was bitter at the time, 
but little by little I came to realize that it was not kind or wise to force this poor dumb creature out of his element, and after a while I felt happy in the thought that he perhaps had returned to the sea. Chapter 11 In the autumn I returned to my southern home with a heart full of joyous memories. As I recall that visit north, I am filled with wonder at the richness and variety of the experiences that cluster about it. It seems to have been the beginning of everything. The treasures of a new, beautiful world were laid at my feet, and I took in pleasure and information at every turn. I lived myself into all things. I was never still a moment. My life was as full of motion as those little insects that crowd a whole existence into one brief day. I met many people who talked with me by spelling into my hand, and thought and joyous sympathy leapt up to meet thought, and behold, a miracle had been wrought. The barren places between my mind and the minds of others blossomed like the rose. I spent the autumn months with my family at our summer cottage on a mountain about 14 miles from Descumbia. It was called Fern Quarry because near it there was a limestone quarry long since abandoned. Three frolicsome little streams ran through it from springs in the rocks above, leaping here and tumbling there, and laughing cascades wherever the rocks tried to bar their way. The opening was filled with ferns, which completely covered the beds of limestone, and in places hid the streams. The rest of the mountain was thickly wooded. Here were great oaks and splendid evergreens with trunks like mossy pillars, from the branches of which hung garlands of ivy and mistletoe and persimmon trees, the odor of which pervaded every nook and corner of the wood, an elusive, fragrant something that made the heart glad. In places, the wild muscadine and scuppernog vines stretched from tree to tree, making arbors which were always full of butterflies and buzzing insects. It was delightful to lose ourselves in the green hollows of that tangled wood in the late afternoon, and to smell the cool, delicious odors that came up from the earth at the close of the day. Our cottage was a sort of rough camp, beautifully situated on the top of the mountains among the oaks and pines. The small rooms were arranged on each side of a long, open hall. Round the house was a wide piazza where the mountain winds blew, sweet with all wood scents. We lived on the piazza most of the time. There we worked, ate, and played. At the back door there was a great butternut tree, round which the steps had been built, and in front the trees stood so close that I could touch them and feel the wind shake their branches, or the leaves twirl down in an autumn blast. Many visitors came to Fern Quarry. In the evening, by the campfire, the men played cards and whiled away the hours in talk and sport. They told stories of their wonderful feats with fowl, fish, and quadruped, how many wild ducks and turkeys they had shot, what savage trout they had caught, and how they had bagged the craftiest foxes, outwitted the most clever possums, and overtaken the fleetest deer, until I thought that surely the lion, the tiger, the bear, and the rest of the wild tribe would not be able to stand before these wildly hunters. Tomorrow to the chase, was their good night shout, as a circle of merry friends broke up for the night. The men slept in the hall outside our door, and I could feel the deep breathing of the dogs and the hunters as they lay on their improvised beds. At dawn, I was awakened by the smell of coffee, the rattling of guns, 
and the heavy footsteps of the men as they strode about, promising themselves the greatest luck of the season. I could also feel the stamping of the horses which they had ridden out from town and hitched under the trees, where they stood all night neighing loudly and patient to be off. At last the men mounted, and, as they say in the old songs, away went the steeds with bridles ringing and whips cracking and the hounds racing ahead, and away went the champion hunters with hark and whoop and wild halloo. Later in the morning, we made preparations for a barbecue. A fire was kindled at the bottom of a deep hole in the ground. Big sticks were laid crosswise at the top, and meat was hung from them and turned on spits. Around the fire squatted negroes, driving away the flies with long branches. The savory odor of the meat made me hungry long before the tables were set. When the bustle and excitement of preparation was at its height, the hunting party made its appearance, struggling in by twos and threes, the men hot and weary, the horses covered with foam, and the jaded hounds panting and dejected, and not a single kill. Every man declared that he had seen at least one deer, and that the animal had come very close. But however hotly the dogs might pursue the game, however well the guns might be aimed, at the snap of the trigger there was not a deer in sight. They had been as fortunate as the little boy who said he came very near seeing a rabbit. He saw his tracks. The party soon forgot its disappointment, however, and we sat down, not to venison, but to a tamer feast of veal and roast pig. One summer I had my pony at Fern Quarry. I called him Black Beauty, as I had just read the book, and he resembled his namesake in every way, from his glossy black coat to the white star on his forehead. I spent many of my happiest hours on his back. Occasionally, when it was quite safe, my teacher would let go of the leading rein, and the pony sauntered on or stopped at his sweet will to eat grass or nibble the leaves of the tree that grew beside the narrow trail. On mornings when I did not care for the ride, my teacher and I would start after breakfast for a ramble in the woods and allow ourselves to get lost amid the trees and the vines, with no road to follow except the paths made by cows and horses. Frequently, we came upon impassable thickets, which forced us to take a roundabout way. We always returned to the cottage with the armfuls of laurel, goldenrod, ferns, and gorgeous swamp flowers, such as only grow in the south. Sometimes I would go with Mildred and my little cousins to gather persimmons. I did not eat them, but I loved their fragrance and enjoyed hunting for them in the leaves and the grass. We also went nutting and I helped them open the chestnut burrs and break the shells of hickory nuts and walnuts, the big, sweet walnuts. At the foot of the mountain, there was a railroad, and the children watched the trains whiz by. Sometimes a terrific whistle brought us to the steps, and Mildred told me in great excitement that a cow or a horse had strayed on the track. About a mile distant, there was a trestle spanning a deep gorge. It was very difficult to walk over. The ties were wide apart and so narrow that one felt as if one were walking on knives. I had never crossed it until one day Mildred, Miss Sullivan, and I were lost in the woods and wandered for hours without finding a path. Suddenly, Mildred pointed with her little hand and exclaimed, There's the trestle. We would have taken any way rather than this, 
but it was late and growing dark, and the trestle was a shortcut home. I had to feel for the rails with my toe, but I was not afraid, and got on very well, until all at once there came a faint puff, 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 puff from the distance. I see the train, cried Mildred, and in another minute it would have been upon us had we not climbed down on the cross braces while it rushed over our heads. I felt the hot breath from the engine on my face, and the smoke and ashes almost choked us. As the train rumbled by, the trestle shook and swayed until I thought we should be dashed to the chasm below. With the utmost difficulty, we regained the track. Long after dark, we reached home and found the cottage empty. The family were all out hunting for us. Chapter 12 After my first visit to Boston, I spent almost every winter in the north. Once I went on a visit to a New England village with its frozen lakes and vast snowfields. It was then that I had opportunities such as had never been mine to enter into the treasures of the snow. I recall my surprise on discovering that a mysterious hand had stripped the leaves and bushes, leaving only here and there a wrinkled leaf. The birds had flown, and their empty nests in the bare trees were filled with snow. Winter was on hill and field. The earth seemed benumbed by its icy touch, and the very spirits of the trees had withdrawn to their roots, and there, curled up in the dark, lay fast asleep. All life seemed to have ebbed away, and even when the sun shone, the day was shrunk and cold, as if her veins were sapless and old, and she rose up decrepitly for a lasting look at earth and sea. The withered grass and the bushes were transformed into a forest of icicles. Then came a day when the chill air portended a snowstorm. We rushed out of doors to feel the first tiny few snowflakes descending. Hour by hour, the flakes dropped silently, softly from their airy height to the earth, and the country became more and more level. A snowy night closed upon the world, and in the morning one could scarcely recognize a feature of the landscape. All the roads were hidden, not a single landmark was visible, only a waste of snow with trees rising out of it. In the evening, a wind from the northeast sprang up, and the flakes rushed hither and thither in furious melee. Around the great fire we sat and told merry tales and frolicked, and quite forgot that we were in the midst of a desolate solitude, shut in from all communication with the outside world. But during the night, the fury of the wind increased to such a degree that it thrilled us with a vague terror. The rafters creaked and strained, and the branches of the trees surrounding the house rattled and beat against the windows as the winds rioted up and down the country. On the third day after the beginning of the storm, the snow ceased. The sun broke through the clouds and shone upon a vast, undulating white plain. High mounds, pyramids heaped in fantastic shapes, and impenetrable drifts lay scattered in every direction. Narrow paths were shoveled through the drifts. I put on my cloak and hood and went out. The air stung my cheeks like fire. Half walking in the paths, half working our way through the lesser drifts, we succeeded in reaching a pine grove just outside a broad pasture. The trees stood motionless and white like figures in a marble frieze. 
There was no odor of pine needles. The rays of the sun fell upon the trees so that the twigs sparkled like diamonds and dropped in showers when we touched them. So dazzling was the light, it penetrated even the darkness that veils my eyes. As the days wore on, the drifts gradually shrunk, but before they were wholly gone, another storm came, so that I scarcely felt the earth under my feet once all winter. At intervals, the trees lost their icy covering, and the bulrushes and wonderbrush were bare, but the lake lay frozen and hard beneath the sun. Our favorite amusement during that winter was tobogganing. In places, the shore of the lake rises abruptly from the water's edge. Down these steep slopes we used to coast. We would get on our toboggan, a boy would give us a shove, and off we went. Plunging through drifts, leaping hollows, swooping down upon the lake, we would shoot across its gleaming surface to the opposite bank. What joy! What exhilarating madness! For one wild, glad moment, we snapped the chain that binds us to the earth, and joining hands with the winds, we felt ourselves divine. Thank you for joining me this evening in part one of Helen Keller's autobiography, The Story of My Life. Part two will be released Thursday, April 21st, 2021. In the meantime, I wish you very pleasant and inspired dreams for an empowered tomorrow. Good night.